On today's bonus episode, we'll review 2020 giving trends. This complements our previous episode where we distilled the 100 plus page Nakubo study of endowments and what that means for small and mid-sized organizations out there. While our take on the giving trends doesn't rely on a single study, an array of recent reports point to some surprisingly good news amid the pandemic. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Inspired Investing. I'm your host, Claire Gola, Head of Foundation and Institutional Advisory Services at Bernstein. This podcast is where we connect and share insights with listeners like you who are engaged in the philanthropic sector or who just want to learn more. Today, I'm excited to be joined by Margaret Barrasso, who is a former nonprofit development director herself. And we are very fortunate at Bernstein because she uses that experience in leading our firm's partnership and consultative services for our clients. So, Margaret, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Claire. Excited to be here. Yes, this is long awaited. I think everyone has been eagerly awaiting the release of data measuring the impact of the pandemic on giving last year. We've had a lot of anecdotal information flying our way. So conventional wisdom would say giving had to take a hit last year, right? I mean, it's just how could it how could it not? But surprisingly, Philanthropy's response to COVID-19 in 2020 was groundbreaking, right? $20.2 billion, which eclipsed any other national disaster in recent memory. So these preliminary estimates are coming from legitimate sources, reports released by Candid and the Center for Disaster Philanthropy. So it sounds like the story really is one of incredible generosity. Is that fair to say? Yeah, charitable giving rose in 2020, despite the financial turmoil of COVID-19. You know, that's the headline. Donations in the second half of the year nearly matched the initial months of disaster gifts. That's just, it's shocking to hear given all of the conversations we were having with panicked organizations, right, in April, May, June of last year. And so it is good news. But I I have to ask, so that just encompasses the pandemic relief. What about all of the other issues out there? Is this sort of a case of robbing Peter to pay Paul or is it a zero-sum game? Tell me a little bit about that. Well, Claire, we don't have a single definitive source, and there are many ways to cut the data, but for the most part, it was still a good news story. So for instance, the estimated increase in the number of charitable donations in 2020 was 10.6%, and it was the gifts that were under $250 that experienced the biggest increase. This is according to the Fundraising Effectiveness Project. So gifts under 250, there were a lot more of them. And the number of donors in all different giving levels grew by about 7% over 2019. Wow. So overall, charitable giving rose 2% year over year. And that's by the Blackbot Institute. So they do a study every year. It's one of the largest sample sizes of giving. It's representative of the nonprofit sector as a whole. And they found that not only did giving increase, but so did the average size of people's donations. So it went from 617 in 2019 to $737 for the average size of someone's gift. That's about 9,000 nonprofit clients of BlackBod who make up about $40.7 billion in donations. And while it's only one slice of the giving pie, it's very representative of the 1.5 million nonprofits in the United States. Yeah, that's so interesting because the trend prior, as I recall, was that the, those sort of bread and butter gifts, those smaller, you know, sort of annual gifts were becoming more and more difficult to come by for, uh, by a lot of nonprofits. But we were seeing this growth in sort of mega gifts or transformational gifts. People really stepped up, uh, generally speaking, by and large in 2020. 
I just mentioned the conversations that we were having, uh, which were just laden with concerns, right, by organizations in April, May, June of 2020. And were those concerns justified, though? I mean, that we had a lot of these conversations. You know, overall giving grew during the first two months of 2020. And then as the coronavirus pandemic swept across the U.S., you know, businesses were shut down, schools were shut down, nonprofits of all sizes saw a significant drop in donations. That was during like April, May, June. So yeah, it was totally justified. Smaller nonprofits especially were experienced a 17% decline in that period of time compared to the year before, you know, but giving picked up again. Uh, Blackbaud noted that some people donated their stimulus checks and economic turmoil didn't harm all Americans. You know, many opened their wallets to donate to food bank, frontline aid, you know, then protests over racial justice last summer spurred even more of an outpouring of donations. So a lot of organizations that I was talking to, I know that you were talking to too, Claire, you know, we're having excess cash because they had stronger outcomes in 2020 than they had anticipated on the outset. Yeah, that's a, such a good point. We had so many conversations with organizations about contingency planning and ca- and cash position in those really scary months of April, May, and June. And then, like you said, things didn't seem to be playing out in, in such a dramatically negative fashion that, mm-hmm. that a lot of organizations had been preparing for. So it's it's really interesting. But if we dig beneath the headlines, we know that not all nonprofits benefited from this resiliency. So Mm -hmm. what can you tell us about the impact based on size or type of organization? Yeah. So only the largest nonprofits benefited from the boom, you know, according to Blackbaud's study, at least. And although small groups fared very well in digital, and we'll talk a little bit about that later, you know, that's consistent with other data that's showing a bifurcation. We can't say for sure that's driven by the size of the organization, but it's pretty much comparable. For example, CCS Fundraising, they're a strong group nationally who who does some research. They released a report in January and it indicated that the pandemic had mixed effects on fundraising in 2020. 39% of the survey respondents reported an increase in fundraising in 2020 due to the COVID pandemic. But the flip side of that is 44% reported a decline. So some of that might even depend on sector, not just size of the nonprofit organization. So medical research organizations, environmental arts and culture groups experience the biggest drops in donations. But on the flip side, human service organizations, so groups like the Salvation Army, the YMCA, and faith-based groups saw the biggest increase in donations in 2020. So one study from the Lake Institute of Faith and Giving said that the share of religious congregations that have seen declines in giving since the pandemic hit is 41%. But folks who already had online giving set up fared best, and 30% of the congregations said they even were able to raise funds to support other congregations and nonprofits that they support in need. So that completely aligns with what we've seen with our client base across the country. I mean, Margaret, you work with a number of the churches and synagogues that that I do. And those that have really strong online giving programs were faring very well there. The challenge for any organization that acts as the center, the lifeblood of any community will be, in many cases, providing rental income to other programs, housing other programs. And so for some churches... It was fine. Those that house food banks, for instance, you just mentioned food banks have been 
flush with cash. People have been incredibly generous by donating time, talent, treasure, right, to those who need it most. We were working with a number of churches this year that have daycare centers, other community programs that had to stop during the pandemic and actually couldn't pay their rent. So it's interesting to look at the mix of revenues and how different types of organizations fared. The other piece that you mentioned is these other types of medical groups. So we've seen an influx of cash to a number of medical centers or medical clinics, particularly in areas uh, with significant need, but medical research, anything to do with medical research that is not COVID, these associations and institutions have just, they've had to downsize staff. It's been devastating for these kinds of organizations. It'll be interesting to see how organizations rebuild after all of this is said and done. So tell me a little bit about the education sector. So this looks like one area where smaller institutions seem to have actually bucked the trend. Yes, I actually found that to be a really interesting finding from the Nakubo study. The total value of new gifts received in fiscal year 2020 compared to fiscal year 2019 declined by anywhere from 5 to 18% across size cohorts except the smallest institutions, where new gifts actually increased marginally. So the largest endowments think like $25 million to $1 billion and beyond. Uh, They saw the greatest percentage decrease in the value of new gifts coming in, while institutions under that $25 million mark actually increased new gifts this past year And they had more outlier gifts, which I would call extraordinary gifts or unexpected gifts. That's so interesting. It just makes you wonder whether donors to a certain extent thought about, okay, maybe this year in this time, this is the rainy day. This is when we're going to give to those Mm -hmm. organizations that need it most. Maybe not the mega institution with the well-oiled machine of fundraising. (laughs) Um, It's an interesting thing to think about. But that completely bucks the trend that we saw with smaller colleges heading into the pandemic as well. Prior, we've seen some significant financial challenges there. So that'll be something to keep our eye on uh, looking ahead. What were some of the factors as as I'm speculating here? Tell me some of the factors that the data actually bears out uh, influencing donor behavior. Sure. So there were kind of some mixed undercurrents, which is not a surprise. It's kind of the theme of what we've been talking about today. You know, here here are some of the pros. I was talking to a managing director at CCS the other week, and we agreed that, you know, for the first time in a really long time with folks unable to spend, unable to travel, certain groups of people had savings on the sidelines and money to spend that they typically didn't have. And, you know, the well-off are even better than before. This is nothing like 0809. You know, yeah. this downturn was deeper, sharper, but the uptick has also been sharper and faster. So I'm going to let my inner fundraiser show a little bit when I say this, but the need has been more apparent in the past year than ever before. You know, at least in recent history, it's more real now than it was in recent history. And for example, you know, social justice is front and center. Donors are rising to the occasion. And more people are becoming donors who didn't consider themselves, you know, I'm going to use air quotes, the audience can't see me here, but philanthropists, Mm -hmm. you know, people are becoming philanthropists that never would have categorized themselves like that before, you know, philanthropy is kind of democratizing. So those are some positive undercurrents, but there are some negative ones too, you know, reflected in the Nakubo study, there was market volatility, recession, you know, of course we saw that here at Bernstein too, but they pointed to another potential contributing factor. And that was the fact that required minimum distributions 
from uh, individual retirement accounts in this calendar year were pretty much canceled. You know, no one had to make them. And so Nakuba was saying, you know, that could have negatively affected giving. We at Bernstein didn't see that with our charitable clients. A lot of them still made that charitable contribution from their IRA. So I'm not so sure if that was a huge impact, but it is something that was, you know, pointed to in 2020. Yeah. And I have to say, I mean, CCS, that report in January was the only thing that I could find out there early, early on. So I got to give a give <laughs> yeah. a shout out there. That was really helpful. So it's interesting that you mentioned this democratization of philanthropy. And I want to come back to something that you said earlier about nonprofits who already had online giving set up. It makes sense that we see coinciding an increase potentially in online giving as well as smaller gifts. And so tell us a little bit more about nonprofits who successfully pivoted uh, in particular particular potentially with, you know, online giving or use of technology? And what were some of the key success factors? Sure. So while donations to charities increased 2%, like we've been talking about, gifts made online grew 21% over 2019. Wow. That's a big jump yeah, for a huge. portion of these assets. Yeah. So like we said last year at our virtual branding webinar, virtual went from a nice to have to an absolute necessity. And CCS has dug even deeper into this trend. And I think it's one that has a lot of staying power. So in their uh, survey, they found that respondents were finding success with virtual major gift solicitations. These are some wild numbers. So 56% conducted a major gift virtually, you know, phone, video, both, some virtual format. Of those who did it, 72% reported that they were as successful or more successful than their in-person gift solicitations. And you can see why I think donor virtual engagement methods have staying power beyond the pandemic. That's that's a pretty significant number. And 43% reported that they want to include hybrid virtual events even after social distancing requirements are lifted. And 34% said they'll include options of hybrid virtual in-person major gift solicitations. So not just events, but asks post-pandemic. You know, Claire, while we're on the topic of virtual, I think it's worth noting remote work for fundraisers may also be here to stay. So about 90% reported that at least some of their fundraising employees were working remote at least part of the time this January, and 83% were contemplating that for the future for fundraising staff post-pandemic, which is huge. That is not where we were a year ago. <laughs> no. And it's it's reflective of almost every sector out there, right? We're right. all looking at what will fundamentally change and what will kind of go back to business as usual. And some aspects of, I think, virtual business, it, they're just here to stay as folks have experienced the increased efficiencies, right? You always have Mm -hmm. to weigh the pros and cons. And that interestingly brings me to you, Margaret, and I have both experienced this transition to online events from the beginning of the pandemic, because it really hit right at the beginning of sort of the spring fundraiser. So a lot of institutions had um, their events already planned. And so they tried to just basically take what was planned as as an in-person event and replace it with online. Okay, we knew that didn't work, right? No one's sitting in, mm-hmm. in the Zoom, you know, thing for for three hours or whatever. It just doesn't, you know, doesn't work like that. But we've seen this morphing and this sort of adjustment and evolution of totally. how organizations can do these online fundraisers or just 
incorporate virtual strategies into their Mm -hmm. overall fundraising plan. And so that's something that I see continuing to change. There's an industry growing up around it. We're having conversations with vendors to organizations Mm -hmm. to help them facilitate these online auctions and whatnot. There's always opportunity with change in, in our economy, right? So, okay, next question. Grantees were absolutely not the only ones who had to pivot. So at the same time, while we were having many, many conversations with organizations out there trying to keep the lights on, stay in business, deliver the programs that need to be delivered, at Bernstein, we were also having many conversations with funders with private foundations, particularly family foundations that we work with. And there's no question that there was a major shift among funders as well. At Bernstein, we published a piece actually about the need for donors to be more flexible with grantees, the need for speed last spring. Uh, Could you share a little bit more about that? Yeah. So we saw funders moving quicker and with fewer restrictions. You know, we saw major moves towards what I call trust-based philanthropy. And the Lilly School found that 56% of foundations that plan to stick with permanently loosened restrictions on grantees, that is huge. And only 13% said that they are decidedly not permanent. So there's a handful of groups that are kind of still thinking about it, and there's hope that they'll be a little more flexible too. Our AB blog at the outset of COVID called for COVID to be this catalyst for long overdue changes in the philanthropic and nonprofit world. So while there's still much work to be done yet, I'm so happy to see that some of these trends like this one show promise for sticking around. And I should add that when it came to flexibility, only 39% of gifts were for general support rather than specific programs. And this stats according to the report collected by Candid and the Center for Disease Philanthropy. Because, you know, look at these gifts. If you take out Mackenzie Scott and exclude her extraordinary gifts last year, you know, the figure plunges to 9%. So a ton of room for improvement, but again, progress in a very promising direction. Mackenzie Scott alone was a game changer this year. You and I both worked with organizations who were the direct mm-hmm. recipients of Mackenzie Scott gifts, which were game changers, which included then building out an investment policy, building out an investment program, really thinking strategically about the best use of, of funds and what you know what's spent now, what's reserved for later. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit more about other disruptors. Can we say anything else? Is the, does the data show anything about other mega donors? Yeah, so the Chronicle of Philanthropy does an annual ranking of America's biggest philanthropists called the Philanthropy 50. And they cited that this group gave more to historically Black colleges and universities, social justice groups, and organizations that serve the poor and homeless than they ever have before. This is large in part due to COVID's disproportionate impact on minority groups and increased social and civil justice discourse. But experts, again, you know, think this change too could have staying power. I can't say it enough. It's another long overdue change with still a ton of work to be done. But stats like 39% of education grant makers now say racial justice is a top priority for funds, trends in the right direction. You know, we saw in a number, you know, CCS, but a number of other reports that that so many respondents indicated their nonprofit changed some aspect of their operations in response to this national reckoning on racial equity and social justice. I know we've worked with organizations who have said both foundations and nonprofits out there seeking funds that have said we've made a commitment to become anti-racist in all aspects of our enterprise. Right? So that includes our investments, that includes our staffing, that includes our programming, that is everything, looking at every single aspect of the business 
of a foundation or a nonprofit. And so I know that in the CCS report, 51% of survey respondents I read uh, reported that they took steps to make our workplace more diverse, equitable, or inclusive. And I'm just going to put a plug in here for our March episode with Ashley Davis. Uh, It's titled Learning to be Color Brave. And it talks about this journey that so many institutions are on right now and how we're partnering at Bernstein with our clients. Not that we have the answers, um, but we're on that journey with them. So before we wrap up, what can we say looking ahead into 2021? Should organizations brace for a pullback in giving or should we expect this type of generosity to continue? What do you think, Margaret? So yet again, it depends on who you talk to. I'm optimistic though. (laughs) You know, CCS said looking ahead, they kind of surveyed sentiment and experience of fundraisers and saw that 43% said they expect a decline in fundraising, but 27% said they expect an increase. And I'm going to note that that 43%, which sounds large, is broken down into 33% expecting a modest decline Mm -hmm. and only 9% expecting like a steep drop off. Um, And and, and most of these declines are expected around events, which is not shocking as we talk about this move to virtual. So in my opinion, again, another move in a right direction towards less reliance on major events and more reliance on individual relationships or uh, relationships with families and different companies and communities. The Lilly School, though, said in their recent report, broad philanthropic growth is on our horizon. And that's over the next two years as our post-COVID economy rebuilds. They anticipate a 4.1% increase in total giving this year and 5.7% the next year. Now, they look at foundations specifically, and I thought this was interesting. They predict a dip, just 1% this year in their giving, and then a big jump to 8.8% the next year, which makes sense. Foundations might pull back a little bit this year and then revert back to business as usual due to some major outsized giving in 2020. So I believe there's reason for optimism. People are going to be giving again this year, and some people are even going to be giving more. Well, that is a great way to end it. Optimism. Uh, I love it. Uh, as we reopen, thank you so much, Margaret, for joining me today and for parsing out all of this research. Yeah, thanks for having me. Fun to take our conversations to a new forum this week. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you all for listening. If you'd like to learn more on Bernstein's Foundation and Institutional Advisory Services, please see our link to the blogs in this episode's description. If you enjoyed this episode and haven't subscribed to our podcast yet, please go to the iTunes store, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts to subscribe and rate us. Also, please email us with your thoughts, questions, and feedback to insights at Bernstein.com and be sure to find us on Twitter at BernsteinPWM. Bernstein, making money meaningful for individuals, families, and foundations for over 50 years. Visit us at Bernstein.com.